0: You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. So several years ago, I helped my brother uh, with this big remodel project on a house that he bought. It was one of those fixer-upper houses. I think he only paid like $40,000 for it. And it was a mess. You, may, you maybe have seen a house like this. Like you walk in the front door, it smelled terrible. There were holes in the floor that you could see the dirt under the house. Like you're not supposed to see the dirt through the floor in the house, but you could. The kitchen was literally falling off the house. One of the major jobs we had to do was to like jack it back up and get it reconnected to the house. And it, it, there were so many things we had to do to that house. Basically, he bought it to to, to fix it up completely, so we stripped it Bear, We went in. We took out all the walls down to the studs. We're ripping out electrical. We're ripping out the, the plumbing. Now, there were a couple of days that went up to help him that were extremely gratifying. These were the days when we got rid of the big stuff. Like there was this one day that we got to go in and just rip out the cabinets out of the, the whole kitchen. And we had to be careful because the kitchen might fall off the house. But we're tearing the cabinets out. There was this moment where we took a toilet. And I think we just Threw it through a window, like through the glass and everything. It was so awesome. and We were like 10-year-olds in a china shop, except there were no grown-ups to tell us to stop. Like We were the grown-ups. We were like, yeah, what? We would throw it through the window because we want to. My brother had all these dreams and all these ambitions for this home. He wanted to turn this trashy place into a place his family could live and they could enjoy. But a lot of work had to be done first. Now, we used a lot of tools in that project, hammers and saws and drills and all kinds of things, levels, But probably the most necessary tool that we used uh, was one that you don't immediately think of. But it, he rented this giant dumpster that sat in the side of the yard, and that's where we put all the asbestos, you know, and lead, all the craziness that we tore out of the house. We put in that dumpster, you know. In order for my brother's dream for this home to become a reality, some cleanup had to happen. Some things had to come out so that some new things could take place. Uh, now the, the place is beautiful. He was able to install state of the art everything and it looks great. He actually has it as a rental property now and it's worth like three times what it was when he first got it. And it just shows you the value of in a renovation project, stripping things down to the bare bones and getting rid of the trash. You know, today what I want to talk about is the idea of cleaning house. You know, just cleaning house and and getting everything the way that it should be. Today we're in week three of this four-week teaching series called Under Construction. And basically we've been looking at what it looks like to have a life built by God. I believe there are four vital, I'd call them essential components to a life built by God. In the first two weeks we talked about, in week one we talked about the foundation of a life built by God, which is, does anybody remember? Faith, the foundation of a life built by God is faith. This has also been a bit of a speed tour through the entire Bible. In this four weeks, we want to kind of go from cover to cover and just see chronologically how God's plan for building people has never really changed. There's been some slight modifications as the different eras have come and gone. But there's always been a foundation of faith. And we talked about Abraham. We fast-forwarded in week two about 650 years to the life of Joshua. We talked about moving from speculation to declaration. And the word there is confession. Confession. What do you believe? We'll say it. What do you believe? We'll make some actions happen that prove that you believe that. And so the first two vital elements are faith and confession. And this week, we're going to take a little bit of a shift in the way we talk about it. See, for the first two weeks, we've been talking about things as if they were new construction, laying a new foundation, putting up you know new signs. And we talked about comparing that to, I don't know, marketing or branding or advertising. Like, what is this building all about? Oh, let's put a sign up. That's the confession of what this building is about. But the reality is, if we're actually talking about a life built by God, the majority of us in this room are not coming to God with a brand new structure, are we? We're coming with a little bit of a fixer-upper. You know what I mean? We're bringing God what we got. When you walked in this morning, or when you first approached God for the first time, maybe it's been weeks, months, or years ago. You brought him what you got, and it might have resembled something a little bit more like, you know, my brother's fixer-upper house. Than these new constructions we've been talking about around town. This week, I want to get to this concept of cleaning house, and the word of the week is repentance. Repentance. Repentance may be one of the most misunderstood words in Christianity. Uh, when I talk to a lot of people, we have a class twice a year called Venture Basics, and it's just a class where Really, everybody from all different kinds of backgrounds, we come together and we say, what are the basics about life and God and the Bible, and what do you need to, to, to live in a life with God? And so that's what Venture Basics is all about. And we talk about repentance at one point, and i often ask the question, every time I ask the question, what does repentance mean? Most often, someone in the room feels this way. They say, repentance means saying that I'm sorry. Is that kind of what you thought it was, maybe? It's, it's actually a decent part of the definition. It's part of it. But... That's actually apology. You know, I apologize. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry for what I do. Repentance is kind of taking apology to the next step. Repentance is, here's a definition I want to give you to work with. It's a change in your mind that leads to a change in your actions. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe it's the first time. But repentance is a change in your mind that leads to a change in your actions. I believe this thing. I want to do this thing. But I'm going to, therefore, act differently. So this third week, the third vital component to a life built by God Repentance. The reality is none of us are perfect. In fact, there's nothing we can actually do to earn the favor of God. We can't do anything to earn anything from God. In fact, He's God, and even if we tried really, 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 really hard to be perfect, it, it wouldn't be good enough. Because it's it's sin that keeps us separated from God. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, some more. But because of Jesus. God saves us, and He builds us despite our failure. That's what we call grace. It's getting something you don't deserve. See, God knows what we've been through. He knows where we've been. He knows what we bring to the table. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, the author Max Lucado, and he's got a book called Just Like Jesus. And this is a quote from his book. It basically says this, You know, God loves you just the way you are, but He refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Sometimes we come to God with the mindset of, yeah, I heard God loves me just the way that I am. So here I am, God, and I'm never going to change. And God says, no, I love you the way that you are right now. And I understand that any amount of change is going to be a process, but I want to help you become just like Jesus. That's a life built by God, and it begins with, confession, with repentance. Repentance. God has this awesome plan to remake everyone who comes to him and give him a fresh leaf on lease on life, and he does that in a moment. Like with the blink of an eye, God looks at you in this moment where you accept him and you are obedient to him, and he's like, Yes, you're mine. But the change in our life that we're looking for, that change takes time. Th- that's not something that happens in an instant. That's the process of cleaning house, it's the process of repentance. You know, that instant where God says, yes, you're in, that's what we call being saved, right? That's, that's, maybe you've heard that phrase and maybe you say, I'm saved. That's a state in God's mind. But something has to happen to the state of our mind for us to continue to change our lives to be more like Jesus and to be built by him. So we're in this uh, series of, of going through the Bible and like a speed tour in four weeks. And uh, what I want to do today is open the Bible and get into a story where we can learn some more about repentance from the Old Testament. Uh, we'll be in the book of Second Samuel. Second Samuel, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free. Make sure you grab one before you leave today. We've got a few in the back that you can have. Second Samuel, uh, it, second Samuel is a, one of six books that goes over a period of Jewish history that's about the kings, the lives and the stories of the kings. You've got first and second Samuel, first and second kings, first and second chronicles. And these six books kind of are an overarching story of the nation of Israel from the perspective of the kings. Remember, we went back to week, week one and we started with Abraham. And there was a promise of a nation that was going to be built from him, from his offspring. Where we land in 2 Samuel, we're about a thousand years removed from Abraham. Man, a thousand years later, and this promise has really started to be true. Israel's all grown up. They got themselves a king. And uh, if you read the stories of the king, what you start to learn is, man, they are messed up. Some of those kings get in some big trouble. We're going to be looking at probably one of the best-known kings in the history of the world. His name's King David. He's the second king of the nation of Israel. And here's the thing. The king's really messed up, but I don't want to give them too hard of a time because I can kind of relate to these kings. I mean, I'm not a king myself. I don't have any ambition of being a king. There's no nation that wants me to lead them. And so uh, instead, I'll be a preacher. But the idea of being a king is something I think we can all relate to. And Let me just, let me just kind of say this. Which, which one of us lives a life... Where we kind of issue our own decrees, we define our own ethics, we decide what we're going to do and what we don't want to do. We quit jobs because we don't want this guy telling us what to do because we want to do what I... Let me me give you a specific illustration. How many of us in this room, I'll just go on record and say I might be the only one here that does it, but drives about five to seven miles over the speed limit everywhere you go? Yeah. Is that against the law? Let's just be honest. Yes, it is. But we're all okay with it. Why? Because I'm king. Look, I'm calling, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't like a heaven or hell thing, this is just reality. We make our own, we make our own ethics. We say, this is what I'm gonna do, this is I'm going to do. why I'm gonna, why do we all eat this unhealthy food? And we're like, yeah, it's killing us. Mmm, <laughs> have me another slice. Right, why do we do this? Because we wanna sit on the throne of our life and rule. Now, those are small examples, okay? Those those are minor examples, but the reality is, I think, to a large degree, we all sit on the throne of our life, and we want to be king. But here's the deal. If you want God to build your life, you can't be king too. And that's a hard truth to swallow. And our man David is about to find this out in a real way. Let's take a look at 2 Samuel, a life of a real king who got way too caught up in building his own kingdom. And totally stepped away from God's desire for his life. We're going to be in a second. Uh, Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. And it begins on a warm spring evening. Here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. That's kind of one of his military general leaders. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. What a great way to open a story. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war. So like the opening to like Chronicles of Narnia. But it makes sense because actually what would happen is during wartime, uh, they would kind of call a, a, a ceasefire, as it were, in the cold months, in the wintertime. Why? Cause it's cold, man. Ain't nobody hey, got time for fighting in the, in the wintertime? So they time out. Time out. And then they they all go to their areas and they drink a glass of water. And then the springtime, when the kings would go to war, that's where we are. Now, David is a warrior king. He had done more than his fair share of fighting in his day. He actually had a lot of blood on his hands. He was a warrior. Um, and so, you know, he's not with his army right now, though, because actually some of his men had encouraged him to stay home in the interest of the kingdom. So he did. Before we get too far in this story, i got to tell you something. David was a good king. He really was. We're about to get into a story where I wasn't so good, but David was a good king. He was also a godly man. In fact, the thing that actually brought him into prominence in the kingdom of God was his godliness, his trust in God. If you know anything about the life of David, then you probably know the story of David and Goliath. That's the story of a young man who trusted God so much that he said, against all odds, I will face the enemy. David was a good king. He was a good and honorable man. Under the rule of David, Israel had enjoyed some of the most prominent time in the history of the kingdom. In a thousand year history, David has brought them to a place of prominence and prosperity like they never experienced before. Not to mention that the current battle that they were fighting, they had destroyed the Ammonites. We just read that. They got another city under siege and these are enemies who are out to get them. So as a king, man, this he's sitting pretty, ha- pretty happy right now, right? But while his enemies and his, I mean, while his army is is winning the war against his enemies on foreign soil, David's at home losing a battle with temptation. Let's check out what happens in verse two. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was beautiful the roofs in Jerusalem uh they were flat, and you might think of them like like the patio or the porch at your house. So it's not strange that he was walking on his roof. It was actually a nice place to get away in a warm spring evening because it was hot in the house. They didn't have air conditioning, so he's up on the roof. Also, you need to know that the city of Jerusalem, uh if you if you look at it, it's it's built like on a hill, actually a mountain. And so at the very top of this this geographic area is the palace. So David is standing on top of the palace. From that place, he could look down across the city, look over his people, apparently into his neighbor's courtyard. There also was no indoor plumbing. Bathsheba was taking a bath and people would bathe inside. Often they would go outside in a a surrounded courtyard. There's no reason to believe that Bathsheba, uh, this woman in the, in, in the story knew that David was, could see her. And at this point, David makes a big, decision that he should have never made. Verse three, said, David sent someone to find out about her. The man, I guess he goes and he comes back and he says, well, she is Bathsheba. That's her name. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he sends someone to check in on this girl to see who she is. First of all, who does that? That's creepy. Like that is extremely weird. Like if you Maybe you've been in one of those situations where you accidentally saw something that you shouldn't have seen. You're like, oh, excuse me. What do you do? You you turn your head. You walk away. You you never happened, right? He's like, "Uh, excuse me, boy. Yes, boy. Please go find out who the bathing woman is. This is his response to this. He should never have done that, but that's what he does. Beyond the creepy factor, when they come back with the report, he finds out this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Some red flags should have gone up for David immediately. Let me tell you who these people in this story are. First of all, Eliam. Eliam was one of David's most trusted soldiers. He had been part of this elite fighting group called David's Mighty Men. When you look into the story of David's David's Mighty Men, you find out they're kind of like these Navy SEALs of David's army. And on more than one occasion had completely risked their lives for David. And so he hears that his boy Eliam's got this daughter and, and, and she's married. And he should have gotten that report and said, oh, my bad. Yeah, that's okay. You know, that's, that's my friend's daughter. I should respect that relationship. I should step away from that. First red flag, completely ignored. Second red flag. We also learned that she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, Uriah would have also been someone that David knew. We find out. Uriah was one of his soldiers who right now was all fighting for him in another country. While David's sitting at home in the lap of luxury, it was men like Eliam and Uriah who gave him that ability to do that. Second red flag, ignored. You may know this story. A lot of you probably do. But if you don't, you could even see where it's headed. But before I get to the next section of the story that kind of lets the cat out of the bag, let me tell you one other thing that's important about the story that David was well aware of. That according to the law of the Israelites, God's law and the law that they live by, adultery was a crime punishable by death. See, David knew that. He was a king. He was involved in, in, in you know, enforcing the law. And so he knew that all these red flags were in front of him, but he said, eh, I'm the king. Verse 4, this is what happens. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. It says now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Just give you a little bit. This is code for uh, she had recently finished her monthly cycle, and so she was in a time where she was most likely to become pregnant. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived. And she sent word to David. She said, "I am pregnant." That's the story. That's how it went down. That's how this is the moment of failure. That takes David from being this honorable king to the common position of baby daddy. That's where we find David now. Uriah was off at war. There was no way to prove that it was his child. And so David's got to do some fast thinking. What am I going to do? Not only that, but when she begins to show, what's the law say? Adultery is against the law. It's a crime punishable by death. Her blood is on his hands. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you mess up? Just chew on that. What do you do when you mess up? What do you react? Well, the first thing David tries is something that we might have tried before. I know I've tried it, man, too many times. Here's, here is David's plan A, okay? This is David's plan A. It's called Operation Cover Up. You ever tried that? Like, oh, shoot, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, you don't know. Sweep it under the rug. You kind of try. Maybe it didn't happen. Real quick, you know? Go ahead, turn off the TV. It, it delete your internet history. You know, go, go talk to somebody else because you didn't hear what you said. Oh, maybe they didn't hear what you say that. You said something that you didn't mean in a little argument. You take a little jab and then you're quickly like, oh, no, you, mis- you misunderstood me. I didn't, I didn't say that. That's, the radio was on. <laughs> Operation cover-up. What happens is he wants to make it look like nothing ever happened. He wants to make it look like everything's good. He's going to save face and everybody's going to be a winner. So this is what he does. He calls to his general, Joab, and he says, listen, there's a guy on your, in your, your army. His name is Uriah. He's a great soldier. Isn't he great? is Uriah great? Could you send him home? Just send him home. I want to throw that guy a party. So he does, and he sends for Uriah. Uriah comes back to the palace, and he says, Uriah, you're such a great, trusted servant and soldier. Listen, let me give you a break. Why don't you take some time off? Go home. Kick your feet up. Spend some time with your wife. Like, alone. Like, just as long as it takes Stay home, Uriah. And Uriah's like, I, I don't know. Like, I probably shouldn't do that. He's like, no, 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 here, have a glass of wine. And, and he, he, he gives Uriah a bunch of wine. And he says, go home, go home. Uriah does this amazing thing, this honorable thing. In the face of the king whom he serves, he says, uh, no, sir, I can't do that. I, I I couldn't do that. In fact, let's read what he says, Second Samuel 11, verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. My commander Joab, my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink, make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Man, adding insult to injury, like Uriah now makes David feel about an inch tall. I'm sure David's like, yeah, who would, who would do that kind of thing? No, nah, nah, man, not me, not you even, especially you, apparently, Not you, because you're not going to do that. Shoot. Plan A doesn't work. Operation cover-up doesn't work. So moving to plan B. If you've ever made it to plan B, you get this. Here's plan B. Operation cover-up doesn't work. So plan B is operation desperate times call for desperate measures. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, okay, this is when you start to get stupid. Stupid. This is when you make decisions that you're going to regret. But in the moment, you're like, this is totally going to work. We're going to make this work. And so this child is growing in Bathsheba. David has only a matter of of weeks to work it all out. So this is his choice. He reaches down into the depths of his soul and finds some evil, sinister scheme. Unthinkable. Let's read what happens. 2 Samuel 11, verse 14. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He sent it with Uriah. He wrote this letter. I want you to understand Uriah is going to carry this letter. This is what the letter said. It says, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. That's what the note said. Can you imagine being Joab? Get that letter like, what did you do to the king? (laughs) Hey, oh yeah, you're in uh, squad A. (laughs) While Joab had the city under siege, he put... Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were, and when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of David's men army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Problem solved, right? You ever done something so selfish, so low, so wrong, that you just lost your mind and other people got hurt? I I have. It's a low place to be. And once you actually achieve your goal, you, you actually feel worse for it. Like, man, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? That's what sin does. Listen, sin is the lie that I'm in control of this. Sin. The devil is called the father of lies. It's a nickname is given in the Bible, and it's a fitting one. One thing that I've learned to ask myself when I'm feeling tempted or stuck in sin, this is a question I've learned to ask myself. In fact, I encourage you to write this down if you're a note taker, especially if you're just trying to get over a big hurdle of something in your life that's kind of separating you from God. This is the question I've learned to ask myself. What lie am I believing right now? What lie am I believing right now to make me believe that this is an okay thing to do? It'll only take a second. It's not that big a deal. Nobody will find out. What lie are you believing right now? If you've ever battled addiction, you know what I mean. You rationalize it. You hide it. You fight it. And then you give in. And then you feel even worse, which for some reason drives you into more of it. What lie are you believing right now? David believed that he could fix this. In fact, David believed I'm the king. I'm above the law. Surely I can get around this. And Uriah's dead. So David's plan came together. Let's look at the aftermath. Verse 26 says, When Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, had heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Can we take a second there? That's like one sentence. Have you ever lost somebody? Like for a second, David was like, Dude, fix. It. Wait. This is her husband. He probably had brothers and cousins and uncles and aunts, parents. Like all of this one decision David made and just think about this ripple effect of consequences. Verse 27, though after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sweeping sin under the rug doesn't work. Trying to cover it up doesn't work. Trying to rationalize it or improvise it. It doesn't work. You know why? Because God's eyes are everywhere. God sees it. On the one hand, David looks like a hero. Oh, look at this poor widow. Her husband's a soldier and he died. Look, the king took her in. Oh. But what does the passage say? But God was displeased. He knows what really happened. The only way to deal with our sin, guys, this is the only way to deal with it, is to let God get involved. That's the only way. During the time of the kings, God got involved through people called prophets. In fact, if we're doing this speed tour through the Bible and we've gotten through the kings, uh, most of the rest of the Old Testament is all these books with the names of prophets, names like Amos and Obadiah and Hosea and Isaiah. And and, and if you didn't know the chronology of the Bible, you might think, well, it just keeps going and going and going and going through history. And it does. There's, There's more time. But those prophets, the majority of them, actually overlap the time of the kings. So that you could actually take the prophets and you could put them into the lives of the kings because the kings always had at least one contemporary prophet that they kind of answered to and God spoke to them through. One of the guys for David was a guy I want to introduce to you named Nathan. The only way to deal with sin is to let, get in, let God get involved. And the way that God got involved here was through Nathan. Nathan is going to go in and he's going to confront David about what's happened. Because God has seen this and he's displeased with it. But don't forget, David is still the king. Have you ever seen Alice in Wonderland? Was the queen dude? Everybody? Off with their head, right? You don't want to make the king mad. Because you might lose your head over it. So, so Nathan's kind of smart. I'm guessing that God helped him with this one a little bit. He walks in and instead of confronting the king, he tells him a story. He acts like he's reporting on something that's happened in the kingdom and a couple of other people that have gone through a conflict. And so this is a story he tells in verse 12. He says, listen, king, there were these two men. And they're in a certain town. And one of them was rich. And the other one was poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he'd bought. He raised it. He grew up. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup. He really liked this sheep. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man's house. Remember, there's a rich man and a poor man. Rich man's got lots of sheep. Poor man's got one. The rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David hears this story and he's like, what? It says he burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing, had no pity. Remember, David had been a good and just king up to this point. So the idea of injustice in his kingdom infuriated him. But this is when Nathan just drops the hammer on him. He says this in verse 7, Nathan looked at David and said, you are that man. I asked you a minute ago, what do you do when you mess up? Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you get caught? Red-handed. David, you're, you're the rich guy. That stolen lamb wasn't yours. That was Uriah's wife. And you tried to cover it up, but God saw it. David immediately is struck with what I imagine is that initial guilt, that I got caught guilt. But this is what he says in verse 13. He says, Man, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, Well, the Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die. You can't sweep sin under the rug. The longer you do, the worse it bites you. The only way to deal with sin is to let God get involved. David's made a huge mistake. The question is, is there any turning back now? Maybe you've made some mistakes in your life. The question is, is there any turning back now? First, I want to make sure that we understand something. Sin comes with consequences. If we go against what God wants us to do? There are repercussions for that. Some of them are just natural repercussions. Like in Bathsheba's case, babies happen, Right? There are consequences to a lot of the decisions that we make. And there are always consequences to sin. David has to deal with a lot of fallout from that mistake with Bathsheba. I already talked about what must have happened with the family surrounding Uriah. Eventually, the son born to them dies. And dealing with that on top of the trauma of everything else. A couple of other punishments are issued to David from God. And not to mention that, can you imagine... It was about 3,000 years ago when David lived. Can you imagine 3,000 years from now, a group of 120 people sitting in a room talking about the worst mistake you ever made? It's 3,000 years later, and this has stuck with David. There are consequences to our sin. Most sin has immediate consequences. When you mess up, there's guilt, there's problems. Sometimes there's life consequences that go a little bit deeper, like debt or humiliation or the loss of a job or the loss of respect. Maybe you end up with jail time. Maybe it leads to addiction, all kinds of pain. But beyond the immediate consequences, beyond even the life consequences, there's an even bigger role that sin plays. And it's the biggest consequence of all. It's the eternal consequence of sin. You know what sin does to us spiritually? It turns our relationship with us and God like the polar opposite ends of a magnet. It's not that God dislikes us or that he's unreasonable, but that God in his pure and holy state simply can't be with sin. Sin's a big deal and it's got consequences. What do you do when you mess up? You know... I think the only way to deal with sin is to let God get involved. And, and my, my family has been reading through uh, the Little House on the Prairie book series. Actually, my wife has been doing most of it. They listen to the books on CD. And first of all, Little House on the Prairie is an awesome series. It's way better than the old TV show with Michael Landon, which was pretty good. But there's a lot of life lessons in there. But getting into Laura Ingalls Wilder's story, she's the author of that series, has been really neat because she also was a great thinker. And she, she did a lot of journaling and she was a Christian. And uh, my wife showed me Uh, kind of a journal entry from one of Laura Ingalls Wilder's, uh, I guess, a biography about her life recently. It was cool because it was handwritten and it was really, really old and they had really good handwriting back then. But uh, it it was this journal entry and it said something like, uh, scriptures for everyday life. And so it said, like, when you're worried, Read these Bible verses. And when you're dealing with family, read these Bible verses. And when you're thinking about raising your children, read these Bible verses. And when you're dealing with your finances, read these Bible verses. And on and on, all these real life things. And one of the things said, When you sin, this was the this was the advice. Read first John chapter three and make Psalm fifty one your prayer. Read first John chapter three and make Psalm fifty one your prayer. First of all, we're not going to read First John chapter 3 today, and that's something you can take home. I, I totally, it's so encouraging. I totally encourage you to go home and read it. It talks about just the relationship between God and sin and what role Jesus plays in that. Because Jesus, if you're going to get God involved with your sin, Jesus is the only way to get rid of it out of our life. But then it's got this encouraging stuff about how God eradicates sin and how we can come to a new life with him. That's First John chapter 3. But it also says, make Psalm 51 your prayer. Remember that I told you that for the most part, David was a good and godly person. One of his favorite hobbies was to write down songs and, and poetry. And they, they are preserved today in the book of the Bible called the Psalms. You've seen Psalms in the Bible. If you open your Bible right in the middle, it's normally right in the middle there. And there's just so many great verses there that just kind of encourage and enrich us. And he wrote the majority of those. Psalm chapter 51 is the prayer that David wrote to God after this incident with Bathsheba and after the death of their son together. And I just want to show you the heart of a man who's deciding to give his sin to God. Let's just read it. Psalm 51, I'm going to read sections of it. It starts like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen to this. You might relate. For I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you're judged. This is so true, and it's so hard to say, God, I I messed up, and I deserve what's coming to me. This is where David is. He's in this place of humility. But then begins this shift, repentance. A change in mind that leads to a change in action. Listen to his heart in verse 10. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of my bloodshed, O oh God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I bring it to you. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Once David comes to his senses, he hits his knees and he prays and he asks God to build him. Repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. And after this day, David's actions change. He's not perfect. In fact, you read through the rest of his life, he makes more mistakes. But he says, I have got to focus on what it means to do what God wants me to do with my life. Change is hard, but it's part of being built by God. It's about taking yourself off the throne of life and giving it back to him. God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. You remember my house, my, my brother's uh, remodel project, the house that we worked on? Remember that big dumpster outside that we threw all the trash in? Man, we need some of those things in our life. Repenting, changing our actions is about going through your life and saying, like David, in me a pure heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's the process And God is patient with us during that process. I love 2 Peter 3 verse 9. This is something that you can memorize. It will help you get through your day as you work through this cleanup process. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. Repentance. He wants everyone to have this change of mind that leads to a change in action. That's why all through the Bible, if you look through God's message to his people, every prophet, every teacher, every priest, every law, if you looked at it all and you gave the sum of all the messages and you boiled down everything that God wanted people to do into one word, you know what it is? Repent. Repent. Just, just turn away from the things that aren't about me and turn to me for life. Repent. It was the first message that Jesus preached as he began to walk through the countryside and teach. Repent because God's kingdom is here through me. On the day the church began in the New Testament of the Bible, you can read about it in Acts chapter 238. Peter, the the leader of the apostles, he's teaching a group of people way larger than this. And he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about all the things that God has given us through Jesus. And the people are aware that they have done wrong in God's sight. And you know what they asked Peter? They said, Peter, what should we do? What should we do about this sin problem in our life? And you know what Peter says? This is Acts 2:38, he says, "Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The only way to deal with sin is to let God get involved. You might have had some bad experience with church or a street preacher maybe your grandma or your granddad who all they told you was repent, repent, repent. In fact, that's a word that you'll hear in movies when people pick on Christians. Repent. Can I, can, I, can I boil it down and make it a little easier to understand? This is it. God wants us to get everything out of our life that keeps us from focusing on him. That's Repentance. He's not unreasonable. In fact, he loves us unconditionally, and he wants to show us that love in our life. He wants to show us the life that he would build, but first, we've got to get out of the way, and that's repentance, a change in mind that leads to a change in action. And so maybe it'd be healthy for some renovation in our lives today. Maybe you need that first big cleanup that Jesus does that we read about in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Actually, next week, right here in this spot, uh, it, it, except maybe the gremlins will try to fight against it. So pray against the gremlins, okay? But right here in this spot, we're hopefully going to have a baptism pool right here. We're going to have an opportunity for people to get baptized in church on Sunday morning, which is a big deal when your church meets in an elementary school. And maybe for you, it's going to be that moment where you park the big dumpster outside and Jesus comes in with his sledgehammer and his crowbar. and He says, look, let me just clean house for you. Let me fill up the dumpster. The only way to deal with sin is to let God get involved. Maybe that first decision needs to be yours. And you can start, you can make it today. You don't have to wait till next week. We've got an ocean. We've got pools. You can make the decision today. Maybe for you, you've already made that decision. But what you need is one of those little Walmart bags that you get and you keep in your car. That they're like the drink from McDonald's in. You know the little trash bag? It's for tidying up. There's little areas in your life that you just got to keep clean because you know that it's a rough spot for you, and you've got to continue to come in. And don't try to do it by yourself. Jesus is the only one who can do that for you. But pray and talk to Him, and go to friends who can hold you accountable, and get in there with that little trash bag and start feeling. It. Like I'll be honest, there's been times in my life, my life where I've needed a 50-gallon bag, you know, because like I got, I got off the track. But repentance never ends. It's a never-ending renewal of your mind. He can create in you a clean heart. His mercies are new every morning. Bring him what you've got. He's the master. He's the king. He's the builder. So let's get out of the way and let him do his thing. I want to pray for you guys today. Lord, you give us guys like King David who just, you know, they, they step into real life situations. that are the same things that we deal with. There are stories in this room right now of people who have been a part of broken marriages similar to what happened with David. There have been people in this room right now who have stepped into temptation that they saw the red flags and then we kind of sidestepped them because, man, I want to be king right now. There are people in the room right now who maybe this is the first time they've kind of started thinking about this, and even the conversation seems a little bit heavy. But, Lord, what I pray right now is that you just... Do what you do and start knocking on their heart's door through their friends and through coming back to be with us in future weeks. That we can be a community of people committed to a clean heart built by you. Thank you for the trash bags and the dumpsters. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.